Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at Bergen Park Church. I want to welcome you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you were here last week, you got to witness a child dedication, and today's your lucky day. You get to see another child dedication today. So we're going to have a uh, dedication here at the 9.30 service, and then we'll be doing another one at the 11 o'clock service. So that's something our elder team would like to make available to families. If you'd like to have your child uh, dedicated, please see either me or Pastor Jason, and we'll make sure we get that on the calendar. So uh, when we dedicate children, we are essentially recognizing the sacredness of our responsibility as parents, that God has given us children, and this is a gift, and we want to take that, that responsibility of raising them very seriously. When we dedicate our children, we're publicly acknowledging our responsibility in raising those children in the Lord, in the knowledge of His salvation. And when we dedicate our children, we're also inviting the church, the, the congregation, the local body, to support us as families, to support us as parents in raising up our children in the Lord. We are all gifted in different ways, and we all have a responsibility in serving the body of Christ and building up the body of Christ. So, there's no commandment anywhere in Scripture that says you, you must dedicate your children, yet this is something we do um, because I think it really blesses families and it blesses the body of Christ. It also allows us to publicly profess our understanding of God's covenant. He's made a covenant with his people, and we're including children in that covenant. We're inviting them to be part of the faith community. So today, Alex and Kirsty Garrity would like to publicly acknowledge their role in raising their daughter, Ada, in the Lord. And they'd also like to invite you as a congregation to support them as they raise their little girl. So Alex and Kirsty, uh, would you guys come on up? Join me here on the stage. So I got to uh, officiate their wedding a couple years ago. So this is really special. Now I get to dedicate uh, their daughter. So it's a special day for me too. I want to share a couple of scriptures with you from Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to keep his commandments the covenant is for you and your children psalm 127 says that children are a heritage from the lord so alex and kirsty god gives us children for a number of reasons and one of those reasons is to teach us how to love um, I remember when I, when I had my children and held those babies for the very first time, and you realize you look down at this child, and they've done nothing for you, they've brought nothing to you, and yet you'd give your life for them. God gives us children, I think, to teach us what his love looks like. God also gives us children, expecting that we teach them to love God. Um, that's what we're called to do as, as parents, to teach them, to bring them up in the knowledge of God. 
So these are very important things. And, you know, when we pray for our kids, oftentimes, I mean, a lot of you guys as parents are going to pray, you know, Lord, protect them. Lord, keep them from harm. And those are great prayers. And I encourage you continue to pray those prayers over your children. But I want to add one more very, very important thing as well. And that is to pray that your children would come to know Jesus Christ, that they would have faith in Jesus Christ. So that is something we want to pray for our kids. So Jesus said, let the children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So Alex and Kirsty, I've got a question for you. I'm going to ask you the, the uh, response. If you agree with the statement is, we do. And then I'm going to turn to the congregation as well and ask you a similar question. So Alex and Kirsty, do you solemnly promise before God and these witnesses that with God's help and guidance, you will undertake to bring this little one to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and serve him as Lord, making use of all the helps God has given you in the family and in the church? We do. Amen. Congregation, this is about you as well. Um, your support for this family. So I want to ask you to stand. And I've got a question for you. If you are in agreement with this, would you communally say, we do as well? So do you solemnly promise before God and one another that with God's help and guidance, you will support these parents with your prayers as they seek to fulfill their responsibility to this child? And so you promise to assist them by providing encouragement, counsel, and ministries to guide them in the ways of godliness. We do. Thank you. You may be seated. Ada, is it okay if I hold you for a moment and pray over you? Oh, come here, sweetheart. Oh, that's my microphone. Oh, let's, oh, she wants, maybe she wants mama. There she is. All right, let me pray for you, little one. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you will give wisdom and grace to these parents as they face the challenges of parenting. Lord, provide for all their needs as they serve you in this important ministry. We pray for this little one, Ada Garrity, that she grows as she grows. She would know your love, that she would know your grace. Lord, help this child to develop into a godly woman of faith. We pray that by the pull of your grace, you would draw her to you. Would you equip the Garrity family with everything they need to raise this child in faith and in love? Would you supply this church with the ability to support and encourage this family? In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, sweetheart. You can go back to mama. You're saying amen, right? <laughs> yeah, I have that effect on children sometimes. But... So let me just close with this blessing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we present this child, Ada Garrity. Hey, little one. We present this child to God, to his protection, and to his saving grace. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks. Yep. I wanted to mention as well, there are some notes on the table in the lobby, and we'd love for you guys to sign a, a, a note, a card, just to bless the Garrity family on your way out. So please look for those cards on the table outside. Uh, now, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. In fact, we're going to be in Colossians over the next four weeks. So we want to look uh, in particular at verses uh, 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1. And this may be one of the very best summaries in all of Scripture 
of the person of Jesus Christ and his work in the world. In fact, it really is kind of the heart of the book of Colossians. So we're going to take some time to really move slowly and deliberately through this text over the next four weeks and take some time to unpack each phrase and and concept and see what God will teach us about Jesus Christ, his son. It's kind of like when you say, walk through a sculpture garden, and, and, and you want to walk slowly and carefully and, and just enjoy those sculptures and take in the, the beauty of each one uh, from different angles with the shadow and the light and that sort of thing. That's kind of what we're going to be doing here, just moving slowly and deliberately through the passage. And so today our verse is verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and particularly we'll focus on the first part of this verse. So open your Bibles there, and we'll spend some time on, on this phrase. So Colossians 1.15 says, He, that is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God. You know, one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to encounter the divine, to encounter the supernatural, to have some experience of God. If you go to John chapter 14, for example, we have this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus is telling the disciples that he must depart, he needs to leave them and go prepare a place for them but that he will return. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And as he's engaging with his disciples, one of them, uh, Philip, says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. This is verse 8 of John 14. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, wake up, Philip. Wake up. You're gazing into the face of God, and still you don't see him. You're gazing at the image of God, and still you've missed him. God is hiding in plain sight, and still you failed to recognize him. Now, we've probably all had moments where something is hiding in plain sight and we, we miss it. Those moments where you're holding your cell phone. Oh, I'm, I'm talking about myself here, and I'm thinking, okay, where's my cell phone? I've, I've lost my phone. And then my wife gently and politely reminds me, it, it's right there in your hand. Or maybe it's your car keys or some other object. But we, we sometimes have these moments where something is hiding in plain sight, and yet we fail to see it. Here's the question. Are you missing God? Are you missing God? Have you seen him? Is your heart's desire to see him, to know him? Is this your prayer? Lord, let me see you. Our family used to live just a couple of blocks from from a zoo. We lived in in a large city for a while, and we had this beautiful park not too far from our home, and there was a free zoo there, so we would take our children frequently just to get them out of the house, to get some fresh air. We'd go down to this zoo, and one of our favorite animals at the zoo was the crocodile, the crocodile enclosure. 
I mean, what kid doesn't love a nice, leathery, toothy crocodile, right? But the problem with this particular uh, animal enclosure, it was very difficult for the kids to see, especially the area where the crocodiles would hang out. So I'd have to lift them up. See, at one point I had four kids, four years old and under. So I have all these small children, they can't see the crocodile, so they're all wanting to see this, this monster. And so they're tugging at my, my pant leg, Papa, can I see it? Can I see it? I want to see it. Lift me up so I can see it. And then I'd lift them up and we'd look, and then they would look at me and say, did I see it? But whatever the case, they, they, wanted, to, they wanted to see the crocodile. And in a similar way, like young children at the zoo, I think the inclination of our heart is to want to see God. We want to see things in general. We want to touch. We want to hear. We want to encounter reality, and not just physical reality, but spiritual reality. If there's a God, we want to see him. We want to experience him in some way. We want to be sure. Now, we might love him, we might hate him, we might be somewhat ambivalent to his activity in the world, but somehow or another, we want to have an encounter with the divine. And for Christians especially, we want to gaze on the glory of God and encounter him in some way. This is my prayer. Those moments when I'm fearful or when I'm anxious, when I'm uncertain, Father, I want to see you. I just want to see you. I want to know you're there. So as we look at this idea of Jesus, the image of the invisible God this morning, there are two points I'd like to make. And the first thing to note in this passage is that Jesus orients us to the Father God because he is God. You have to wonder why Paul was inspired to write these words. Realize every scripture, every verse is here for a reason. And whenever we come to a biblical text, we want to ask those basic questions of the text. What, what is this saying? Who, who's writing this? To whom? What are the key words? What are the, the, the key concepts? And one of those important questions is, why is this here? Why did God choose to reveal these words to us? What's so important about this? And I think here for the Colossian church, they needed some correction. There was something wrong with their understanding of who Jesus was. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them. This is the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. So Jesus here is described as the image, or in Greek, the icon of the invisible God. And that word icon here... <clears throat> It's very important. Icon simply refers to uh, an image, a representation. It could be a painting, a picture, a sculpture, but a representation of something. Okay, it's the same word we use in English. It, it should be pretty easy to, to remember. The icon of the invisible God. Now, what's interesting here, uh, Paul uses this language, the, the, the image of the invisible God. But we know that God is spirit. God cannot be seen. He's spirit. We read that in John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We know that God is invisible. We're told right here in Colossians chapter 1. We know that no one may look upon God and live, Exodus 33, 20. So we know that God's appearance can't be reduced to that of a human form. This is why one of God's commandments to his people is do not make a graven image. Do not try to represent God by some physical thing. So what does it mean then that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Certainly, Paul has more in mind here than some physical thing. 
Now, certainly Jesus was God in, in physical form, in human form. But here, Paul has something else in mind that he wants to draw our attention to. And I want to suggest that we think here in terms of ontology rather than physicality or, or physiology. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So by ontology, what I have in mind here is the nature of being, okay? By physiology, we're talking about bodily, biological functions of an organism. So in other words, the Son, Jesus Christ, the image, doesn't reveal physical characteristics of God the way that a photo would. What Paul's telling us here is that Jesus, the image, reveals the nature of God, okay? He shows us the character the power, the attributes of God. So ontology, not, not physiology. Think of it this way. No one ever purchases a water heater for their home based on its appearance, right? You don't go into Home Depot or Lowe's and go looking through the water heaters trying to pick out the most aesthetically pleasing, the most beautiful water heater. And the reason for that is because your water heater gets shoved in a back corner of your basement, probably behind a door, and nobody ever sees it once it's installed. The next time you will look at that water heater is probably the day you remove it when it stops working, right? It doesn't matter what it looks like. Its function, however, is what's important. And that's the idea here. You're looking at the reliability of the product. You're looking at the functionality of the product. You're looking at the efficiency and the longevity of the product. That's it. So again, Paul is not so concerned here that you would visually see something when he's talking here about the image of the invisible God. Nor does he care what God looks like, at least in this context. That's not the point. He wants you to know who God is, and he wants you to know what God does. And Jesus shows us the heart of God and the salvation of God because he is God. Now, you might be thinking, well, I've never felt the love of the Father, for example. Well, Jesus shows us the love of the Father. If you haven't felt the love of the Father, I would say, well, haven't you seen the Son? The only begotten Son who came, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of God. You might be thinking, well, how can I experience the tenderness of the Father? Where do we see the tenderness of God the Father, this invisible God? Well, have you not seen Jesus weep at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and show that tenderness, that care for his friend? If you've seen the tenderness of Jesus, you've seen the tenderness of God the Father. Or what about the compassion and the mercy of God the Father? Well, haven't we seen Jesus heal the lame and give sight to the blind? That is the compassion and mercy of the Father. Or the wrath of the Father. Jesus shows us this wrath as he cleanses the temple from those who would keep people from worshiping God. Or there's the holiness of the Father. If you want to experience that, listen to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives where he shows us God's high moral standard and our inability to keep his law apart from the grace of God. That is the holiness of God. If you want to see the wisdom of the Father, look no further than Jesus Christ who responds with wisdom to the traps that people would try to set for him or the false accusations that were brought against him. 
If you want to see the fullness of all the Father's divine attributes on full display, then look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ where the holiness and justice and wrath and love and grace and mercy of God converged in the atoning death of Jesus Christ where he paid our penalty of sin and imputed his righteousness to us that whoever has faith in him would have eternal life. That's the gospel. It's the love and all the attributes of God on full display. Look at the cross. See, again, it's important to note here that the act of seeing God should not be reduced to some visual encounter. See, we sometimes want a vision, an experience, a fireworks display in the heavens. We might be tempted to think that unless we've had some sort of tangible, physical, visual encounter with God, then maybe we're missing something. Maybe our faith isn't complete. I just want to reassure you it's, it's not about those encounters. It's about the faith of a mustard seed. It's about the object of our faith. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he, he asks that, that God would open the eyes of the hearts of the people that they would know God. See, I think we often miss God and fail to see his image in Christ. We do this because we need to be reoriented. We're, we're looking for the wrong God. We've perhaps made a God in our own image, and then that God fails to meet our needs, and then we reject him. We're confused by him. We're looking for the, the classic, you know, old man in the clouds, that kind of Michelangelo Sistine Chapel God, the muscle-bound Zeus-type character, right? A God who does the best he can. He tries hard. He's got a lot of power, but sometimes he gets it wrong. You know, maybe he's not completely sovereign, that, that sort of God. Or we're looking for God to be maybe a, a political uh, savior of some sort who will give us victory and crush our political enemies, a God who's on our side and is going to help us win the victories we want in life. We're sometimes looking for a, a God who's all love and no justice, a God who doesn't really care what we do, or on the flip side, a God who's all justice and no love. A God who's going to exact vengeance against our enemies. Again, it's an incomplete God. We're sometimes looking for God to simply be our therapist. And this is a big problem in the church today. I hear this in pulpits, I hear it in podcasts, I see it in books. God the counselor, God the therapist who's going to fix all of our problems, right? God who's going to guide us on our journey to self-awareness and self-assurance and self-actualization and self-help. That's a problem. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not who God is, right? We're sometimes looking for God to tell us what we want to hear. We're looking for a God who might just simply ignore us and leave us alone so we can do whatever we want. But again, these are all gods made in our image. What we need and what the text is telling us is that we need a God in God's image. We need a full-orbed view of God. And to get there, we need a full-orbed view of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So many of us, honestly, we're like the, the Apostle Philip. I, I can really relate to that, looking right at God and failing to see him. We fail to see God when we pray, and then God answers, and then we, we try to explain it away. 
It's just a natural phenomenon. It's just, it's, it's circumstance. We fail to see God when we blame him for the evils in our lives, and then we take all the credit for all the good in our lives, right? We fail to see God when we fail to steward the resources he's given us, whether it's our spouse, our children, our work, our church, our community. We fail to see God whenever we deny his glorious gospel and refuse to confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. I think the profound truth of Colossians chapter 1 is actually a very simple truth. If we really want to position ourselves to see God in his glory, the creator of the universe, we need to position ourselves to see Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment that you're standing outside of a, a, a cathedral, say like Notre Dame or one of these great, famous, gothic cathedrals. We've got a picture here of one such cathedral. I think that actually is Notre Dame in Paris, probably before the fire that destroyed most of the, the church. But you, you look at an image like this, and the stonework is, is lovely. It's, it's intricate. But the glass, the stained glass, isn't really impressive. Right? It's kind of drab and murky. There's really nothing there to look at. But when you change your perspective and you walk inside the cathedral, everything is different. When you see it from the inside, suddenly the light is coming through. And you see the color, and it takes shape, it takes form. And you see the beauty for what it truly is. Now, I think in many ways, the Christian life, getting to know God, is, is, is like this. Uh, the, the window remains the same. The beauty is intrinsic to it, whether you're on the outside or the inside. It doesn't matter. But as you reposition yourself, you begin to appreciate it differently, right? If you want to see God, ask him to show you who he is. Ask him to reorder your heart, to reposition your mind, to reorient your soul, to get a proper perspective, to see him rightly. Ask him to show you where you've let the wrong impressions and the wrong motives maybe blind you to who he is. Go to his word. Ask him to show you who he is. But there's a second thing in this passage I want to note as well. I think implicit in the text is the reality that there is comfort in this image for those who might fear that God isn't present there's comfort for those who worry that maybe God is silent. Maybe God isn't really there. He's distant. Those who cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Where are you? I can't see you. Are you there? See, I think the reason we want so desperately to see the Father is because we also want to be seen. We want to know that God sees us. I remember a moment when I was a very young child and I was with my mother in a store somewhere and I was enamored with some object I was looking at on the shelf. And when I looked up after a few moments of gazing at whatever it is I was looking at, she was gone. I, I, didn't, I couldn't find her. I didn't see her. There were all these other people around, but I couldn't find my mother. And as a, a young child, that, that wave of fear and panic that, that washes over you when you feel like you're lost, you're not seen, that was my experience. Now, the whole time, she knew where I was. She had me in her view. She didn't abandon me, but I couldn't see her. And that's a, 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 just a, an awful feeling for a kid, I'd say. Now, I want to assure you that even if you're struggling with knowing whether God is close by, 
just know that he, he is. He sees you. He knows where you're at. He has his eye on you. You can know he sees you because he lets himself be seen. And I remember that moment where my mother stepped back into view and I made eye contact with her. That was the best moment of my life. I was seen. I was found. She had her eye on me. I wasn't lost. God lets us see him. There was a passage I was pondering as I was preparing this message, um, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. It talks about this man, Simeon. We, we really don't know much about him. He shows up in this one passage in Scripture. But it's a really powerful example of God allowing us to see him, allowing us to be seen. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the, the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. God lets himself be seen. Jesus was lifted up on the cross for all to see. And yes, I realize I, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but we have this. We have his word, we have the testimony, the eyewitness accounts of many, many people who were there, who saw. Jesus was lifted up for all to see. Have you turned your eyes to the cross? Have you gazed on him? Have you come to him in repentance and faith? Do you want to see God? That's the big question this morning. Do you want to see God? Then get to know Jesus, okay? Get to know him. Do you want to see God? Then read the word and meditate on it day and night. Jason talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at Psalm chapter 1, right? Spend time in his word. Do you want to see God? Well, then turn off the television and turn on biblical discipleship. And this is something we've talked about before from, from up front. You know, you, you, whatever you're watching, whatever you're spending your time on, that's the thing that's going to be discipling you, right? We spend a few minutes in the Word. We spend hours on social media, hours in front of news outlets, hours watching, binge-watching television programs. That's the stuff that ends up discipling us. I actually came across a, a somewhat disturbing article this week, and I don't think this is anything new, but um, it was talking about these burn-ins in, in television screens from the icons of like CNN and Fox News. People had the, the screen on so often and so long that the emblem was burned into the actual screen of the television, so they had to start moving around these images so that it wouldn't cause damage to the screen burn-ins, or ghost images, as they're called. See, the person of Jesus Christ is the only thing that should ever be burned into our heart, 
our soul, our mind. So I ask you again, do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Then stop curating your own image. We all need to do this, to stop curating our own image on social media and conversations and other places and start proclaiming the glorious salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to see God? Then simply ask him, Lord, let me see you. We're going to go to a time of communion now and reflect on what we've learned uh, today. If you didn't pick up communion elements, there are some here in the front. You can also find them in the back of the sanctuary. Can I take you to 1 Corinthians 11 for a moment and read the instructions that were given? Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So here's what I'd say to you this morning. If you are coming this morning with pain and hurt, communion is for you, okay? If you're coming here struggling, wrestling with sin in your life, then please, by all means, take communion. This is God's grace in our lives, spiritually nourishing us, reminding us of what he has done for us. If you're coming with various struggles in your life, again, please take communion. This is our spiritual nourishment in the Lord. However, the text does say, if you are not a believer, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then we do not want to engage in communion in a hypocritical way. And I'd ask you to abstain from it. But use this time to reflect on that question. Do I want to see God? Do I want to know him? This is an opportunity to come before him in faith and in repentance. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to take communion together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I want to see you. I need to see you. Lord, I imagine that's the prayer of a lot of people here today. We want to see God. Help us to do that, Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ. You've made yourself known in your word, the word made text. You've let yourself be seen in your ultimate revelation, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for seeing us this morning. Lord, would you forgive us of our sins? And Lord, would you turn our hearts to you in repentance and faith? In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took also the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the blood of my covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.